when we come to first of Peter we can get the impression that maybe Peter was sitting down at chapter 1 verse 1 starts writing goes right through to, to the end of his, uh, of his letter and that was all under one sort of puff of inspiration of God inspiring him and it may have been like that but it's also quite possible that these letters of Paul and Peter were in, in fact a sort of a, a collection of various uh, statements that they had made under inspiration prophecies and the, uh, the true sense of that word uh, which they uh, were inspired to, to utter at different times it could have been initially at a, at a meeting of, of believers or maybe formally uh, sitting down to write a letter about a specific issue and then under the process of inspiration they, they were gathered together now here in First of Peter the whole of chapter 1 and really going through to about chapter 2 verse 11 is full of references to the Passover and to Israel's deliverance from Egypt at Passover night and applying it to his, uh, his readership and to us now I wonder if this was originally given by Peter as what we would call a sermon or exhortation at the breaking of bread because it would all be very very relevant to uh, remembering Passover in that case now he's writing to Jews and he says in chapter 1 verse 1 that he's writing to uh, the, uh, the strangers who are scattered uh, throughout uh, Pontus Galatia etc and that seems really to be language appropriate to Israel or Judah in their, in their dispersion so he's writing to, to Jews who have been converted to Christianity and are now scattered now which Jews do, do we know from the scriptures that in the first century were converted to Christianity and then scattered well it would be the Jerusalem Ecclesia and how did the Jerusalem Ecclesia start it started by Peter standing up there uh, preaching on the basis of his own failure and his own experience of forgiveness just standing a stone's throw almost from the very spot where he had denied the Lord Jesus and appealing for others to repent and as we've uh, I think brought out in other studies he does so consciously and unconsciously alluding all the time to his own failure to his own experience of sin uh, repentance, forgiveness and salvation by, by grace so it would make sense I think to understand this letter of Peter this, this uh, collection of uh, exhortations from Peter in, in this letter uh, being addressed by him to those that he'd converted on the day of Pentecost those Jewish people who he'd converted who were now scattered uh, as a result of the, the persecution of, uh, of the early church in Jerusalem and were now scattered throughout the, throughout the Mediterranean that would really uh, I think make sense and that's why looking at chapter 1 verse 25 he says this is the word of good tidings which was preached unto you that makes so much sense if this is Peter now writing to those that he had preached the word to uh, and converted on the, the day of Pentecost and I also wonder if verse 17 could be read in that way um, <clears throat> where he says if you call on him as father who without respect of persons etc or if you have called on him the father 
Now, what did they do when he preached? They said, what must we we do to be saved? And they were baptized and called upon themselves the name of the Lord. And I think he may be implying there that, look, what you did when you heard me preach the gospel and you called upon yourself the name of the Lord in baptism, that is actually ongoing. You are continuing to do that in your life. So then that's the uh, the background, I think. Um, And here we are considering the Lord Jesus and keeping, as it were, our Passover. And this whole thing just seems to be so so relevant. It can be your homework to go and uh, pick up all the allusions that he makes in chapter 1 down to uh, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, to the Passover. But let's just uh, pick up one or two obvious ones. Verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and set your hope completely, I'm reading from the the RV, uh, on the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, they ate the Passover meal with loins girded, and he interprets that here as having your minds gathered up. You know, they had uh, these flowing sort of robes, and the only way you could run or even walk was to first of all gather them up. And so he's saying that we should be ready mentally, have your mind gathered together. And of course the human mind has a great uh, problem with wandering. And he's saying that no, we should have our minds gathered up, uh, in control. And that really is the essence of Christianity. That is the bottom line, spiritual mindedness and having the mind under control. And he uh, is, uh, I'm sure, alluding there to the words of, of Jesus in Luke 12:35-36. Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return, that they may open unto him immediately. So what happened on Passover night is really uh, capable of interpretation on two levels. It does look forward, of course, to the fact that Jesus, the Passover lamb, Christ our Passover, is slain for us. Um, and has delivered us spiritually from Egypt and we're now going to go on the journey through the wilderness to the kingdom we have been redeemed from Egypt and yet Jesus there in Luke 12 seems to imply that this whole picture of eating with your loins girded with your clothes gathered together and your minds focused waiting for your Lord to appear and return so that you may open unto him immediately this is talking about how we should be in anticipation of the second coming and of course those themes are brought together really in the whole uh, teaching of the Passover and particularly with the the breaking of bread that we are to do this until he comes and so inevitably as one uh, thinks about what he did for us then and our salvation and our our status as it were uh, in Christ and, and having been saved from the world I think quite naturally you also look forward to the idea of his coming again. And that intensity that they had that night, uh, huddled together in their family units, let's see that maybe as uh, ecclesias, as little groups here and there, focused upon the slain lamb in their midst, which was to be their salvation, that is, as it were, uh, a snapshot is taken of that, and is applied to to us, that that should be our attitude as we await the Lord's coming, and as we also remember his deliverance of us from from Egypt. 
And of course their focus would have been very much on that lamb with a sort of question mark, is it really so? That that slain lamb there on the table can save us from what seems to be certain destruction, both at the hands of the world, of Pharaoh, and also the angel of the Lord going around slaying the firstborn. And they would have looked and looked and looked and thought again about the blood that was daubed on the um, lintels of the doorposts, etc. Uh, and just wondered, you know, is this just a ritual? Can this save me? And of course the ritual in itself, the blood as red liquid, of course doesn't save anybody. But it's what is represented by it which, which saves. And these are very similar questions, of course, as to what should be going through our mind. And that focus that girding up of the loins of the mind, that focus. Uh, Be sober, verse 13, I'm reading from the RV, and set your hope completely or perfectly on the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is very much our feeling, is it not? Right now. That our minds are focused upon the grace that is to be brought unto you. That's what they would have been thinking there in in Egypt, focusing on that, that... the blood of the lamb and focusing Peter very acutely uh, observes on the grace of salvation because according to Ezekiel 20 their faith was not exactly that great and they actually left Egypt uh, taking with them the idols of Egypt believe it or not they did and of course Stephen in uh, Act 7 points this out that they carried with them two tabernacles God's tabernacle the tabernacle of Yahweh and also the start of your god Remphan and uh, another tabernacle system for other gods. They actually carried all that stuff through the Red Sea. So, on one level, they would have realized that, look, our faith is not as it should be. And so their, their focus was, as he points out here, upon the grace of God's salvation. That's exactly, really, our position. So then, going on, looking for some, some of the obvious allusions here to Passover, verse 17. Uh, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. This is uh, exactly their situation in, uh, as it was that night in, in Egypt. And he's saying that's how it is really with us. Verse 18, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without blemish, even the blood of Christ. Now, that's relevant because as they sat there with their idols in one hand and their faith in God, as it were, and his grace on the other, focused on this Passover lamb, they actually had around them and in their pockets and uh, everywhere, it seems, the silver and gold of Egypt. Because they borrowed uh, from the Egyptians uh, the wealth of Egypt. They spoiled the Egyptians. They walked out of Egypt absolutely loaded with silver and gold. Extremely wealthy. That's why every time in in the uh, wilderness journey when something's needed to make the tabernacle, I mean, the the offerings of the people are huge. Uh, I mean, there's no problem. They got all this gold that they're carrying with them, the wealth of Egypt. Yeah, they were wealthy. They spoiled the Egyptians. No wonder they came running after them. I'm sure that was uh, 
partly financially motivated. So then he's saying here, um, but you weren't redeemed by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, of the Passover lamb. And that's again what they would have been thinking as they felt that gold and silver in their pockets, the rings and the, uh, the jewels that they, they'd got off their Egyptian neighbours. They would have thought, yeah, but it's not that that's going to save. It's that blood that is there that came from that lamb that is in front of me on the table. Now this is why we all need this from time to time, to just be jolted and reminded that money and wealth are irrelevant compared to the blood of Christ. Now if the loins of our minds are girded up and we are focused upon him and focused perfectly or completely as the RV says upon the grace that is to be brought to us, the money or lack of in your pockets is as nothing, absolutely as nothing. It's neither here nor there. And yet here we are living in a totally materialistic world and we wonder sort of how can it be that I can live a life that is not looking all the time at how much money I can make or what possessions I can get and worried about silver and gold all the time. How can you get out of that mindset? By focusing upon the urgency of your situation, by having loins girded, minds uh, girded, as he says, focused on the grace that is to come, focused upon the blood of the Lamb, and then however much silver or gold is in your pocket or in your neighbor's pocket is irrelevant. It's absolutely neither here nor there. Uh, just shooting on for a moment, um, verse 23, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. And I wonder if that's an allusion to, uh, to the leaven that uh, they were not to have with them at, at, at that time. But uh, just, just going back to uh, verse 18, that it's by the blood of Christ and not by silver nor gold, you are... Uh, redeemed from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers now at times it does really feel when you look at yourself uh, in terms of personal transformation this is a hopeless case because we are so uh, controlled it can seem by what we receive from our fathers genetically and in terms of nurture, we really are products of our upbringing. We're products of where we came from. And the more you see children growing and the more you just see life going on, that is just so true. It is true that, of course, some individuals may achieve far more than their fathers. That is true. But I'm not talking about human achievement, how much money you make, how much you progress in a career or in in fame or anything like that. I'm talking about, uh, on the very sort of base elements of, of, of human personality and how you do things, etc., and how you, you sort of think things out. This comes from your genetic structure. You, you can't argue against genetic structure. It's how it is. And you can't argue against the fact that nurture is very powerful. Why do you speak the language you do as your first language? Because that's the language that you were brought up to speak. 
So, you know, it's as simple as that. And there's so many things, mannerisms, turns of phrases that, uh, that, that one uses, the slang that one chooses to use, the coping mechanisms, reactions, responses to things. You can't say that this was not the result of your nurture. Nature and nurture, for, for most people, that is almost deterministic of who they are in, uh, in the most elemental terms. As I say, it doesn't uh, have to affect behavior. I mean, the old thing about, well, someone's uh, got to be an alcoholic because their parents were and their grandparents were. No. Uh, genes don't uh, predicate uh, behavior in, in that sense. Um, but all the same, nature and nurture really do define us in, in uh, what, what I would call the, the core terms of, of just personality, of just how we are. And he says here, you are redeemed from that. Not by silver and gold, you can't buy your way out of it, but by the precious blood of Christ. Now, this is Peter's way, I think, of, of talking about what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, where he talks about a new creation, where he says that for those that are in Christ, all things have become new. All things are new. We have been born again. And, of course, Peter talks about that uh, here, where he, he talks about, in verse uh, 23, that being born again by the incorruptible seed of, of the word of God. And he, we've had it again in verse 3, uh, that he has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So then, for us who are in Christ... There is this real and wonderful possibility of becoming totally new people, freed from whatever vain manner of life was handed down from your fathers. Now, it's interesting that uh, the Old Testament uses the word vain, usually in connection with idols, vanities. Um, just want a couple of references there Leviticus 17 verse 7 and Jeremiah 8:19. Uh, but there's absolutely stacks of them where, where vanities are idols and of course Israel and Egypt were worshipping idols Ezekiel is very clear about this uh, they were idol worshippers in Egypt and they'd pretty well forgotten the name of Yahweh and yet he says they were delivered from that by the blood of the Lamb but let's put meaning into, the, into these words how in practice does this work out? The Lord Jesus died upon the cross, whatever it was, 2,000, let's say, years ago. How can the blood of a man who died for me on a hill outside Jerusalem, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, all those years ago in the Middle East, how can that affect me? How does that affect me here in Riga, Latvia? How does that affect you, wherever you are? What you know, happens? What mechanism is there that that changes me now? We can understand, I think, that that may, or did and does, change how God looks at me. But how does that change me? I think it changes us in terms of our response. That the fact that he died for me means that never again can we be passive to that. This is why self-examination naturally flows out of reflection upon the blood of Christ, focused upon his blood, 
we have to respond. We change. Because as he loved us, so we naturally are inspired to love others. There is an influence there, which inevitably comes out of this fact that, wow, I am saved by grace. I have been redeemed. And really, that process is very natural, and yet you have to allow it to to work. Now, just uh, shooting on to uh, chapter 2, I said that this uh, theme continues up to about 2 verse 11. Uh, 2 verse 9, you are a chosen generation, or an elect race, the RV says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. This is clearly alluding to uh, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where, okay, they come out of uh, the darkness of Egypt, because they left Egypt at night, into the marvellous light of uh, the Theophany on Sinai, and were declared a kingdom of priests. And it was God's intention, I think, that all Israel should ultimately be priests. Now, okay, ended up choosing the tribe of Levi and working that way with them, but I don't think that was his ideal intention. But it didn't work out. They, they wanted to leave it all to the specialists, and they didn't rise up to that. But now, for us, Peter is saying, we who have been baptized, who, who have believed in the Passover lamb, who have been redeemed, we also stand after baptism and are declared a kingdom of priests. Now, the implication of that is absolutely huge, that we cannot leave uh, care for others, spiritual care for others, in the hands of the specialists. Ah, yeah, that's for the priests. You are a kingdom of priests. That's the idea of what, what the AV calls a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. That's the idea. That we are declared in prospect God's kingdom and a kingdom of priests. This is the whole point of Melchizedek being a king priest. He was both of them. And we share in that uh, priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Revelation 5 verse 10, the AV says we shall be kings and priests and reign on the earth, but the idea is we have been made now king priests. That's the idea in the Greek there. We have been made now king priests, and we will in the future reign on earth. We are king priests because we are part of this, this kingdom of priests that, that has been, uh, been established. So then, don't be thinking that you cannot take responsibility. You are called and declared as, actually, a priest. And the whole purpose of the priesthood was to teach and share God's word with others, in, in whatever way, on whatever level. I don't necessarily mean formal teaching off of platform, as we might understand the word uh, today. The idea was that they should show forth, verse uh, Nine, the praises or the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. It was God's intention that Israel as a whole nation should be a missionary nation. And they failed, of course. They, they were not the light of the world. They became the laughingstock of the world. And our calling is, I think, to, to be what Israel failed to be. To be 
a light to the whole world of what God has done for us in saving us and redeeming us by his grace. But of course, if that's what we're going to witness to the whole world, these praises, these, uh, as the RV puts it, excellences of him who's called you out of darkness, the darkness of Egypt uh, on Passover night into his marvellous light at, at Sinai, as it were, um, you've got to believe that he has done that for you. You have got to believe that you have been redeemed. And we have been redeemed. I mean, words fail me to try to persuade you, because the Bible almost, you know, every page there is encouragement to this effect, that you are the people of God. We have been redeemed. If Jesus comes right now, we should be able to say, I will be in God's kingdom by grace. And if you really believe that, you can't be passive to that. You will share that with other people in witness in whatever way it might be. And your mind will be focused the loins of your mind will be girded up and focused upon that Passover lamb that was the basis of it all and upon the grace that is to be brought unto us.